remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Matthew 2, beginning in the first verse. Again, give your ear to God's gospel. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, as it is written, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also go and worship him. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. As far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus, has come and that he is our king, that he is sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning. And Lord, we pray that as we consider your word today, you would reveal him to us in a greater measure, that we might be like him and that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I didn't want uh, to let Epiphany completely roll by without considering at least one of the traditional Epiphany texts. And so today we're looking at the vis- visit of the wise men in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And Epiphany is a season that focuses specifically on the revelation of different aspects of Jesus's identity. Uh, another common Epiphany text is um, his baptism, where we, we consider uh, what it means that he is the Son of God. But Matthew's focus today in chapter 2 is obviously on Jesus' identity as the king. There's king language all throughout the chapter. It's set, you saw, in the, in the times of Herod the king. And then you have the visit from these wise men, these magi, these courtly figures. And they're asking for the king of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king. We normally might think of Jesus as a teacher or our savior. And that's true and that's good, that's right. And if you were to tell someone about that, they might think that it's interesting. But if you really want to generate a response when you're talking to someone, tell them that Jesus is a king. 
Paul when he would go and preach. For example, in Acts chapter 13, he uses the Old Testament scriptures to prove, it says, that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the anointed king. And everywhere Paul went to go and preach, there were, there were revivals and there were riots. If you want to get a response, talk about and consider the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. His message, Matthew's message, is that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, has been born and then that is good news for all nations. And so as we look at Matthew 2 today, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see the message of the Messiah's birth. And we're going to consider the various responses to that message. We're going to see the message that the Messiah, the King, has come. And we're all going to, also going to see the responses to that message. Matthew opens in verse 1 by saying this. Now, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The wise men, the magi, that's what magi means, um, are, are not kings, as the common Christmas carol states, we three kings. That may be good biblical theology. There's lots of links to kings and their uh, courtly figures, um, but they're not kings. They're counselors to kings. For example, in the Old Testament, Daniel and his friends are wise men. They're magi. These are educated men seeking the truth and trained to counsel and advise a ruler, much uh, like a cabinet or um, that a president or a prime minister might have today. These are people who are picked to advise on various facets of court life or statecraft. Okay, and so the Magi come into Jerusalem, and uh, they, it says that they are following a star, and they arrive into Bethlehem. And everybody is wondering, okay, what about, what about the star? Is, this, um, is it a star? Is it a, a supernova? Is it a phenomenon? Is it an angel? Is it the glory of the Lord? And uh, that's a very interesting discussion, but it's not the one that we're having today, okay? Um, the star is not the point. The, the Magi's message is what Matthew is actually after. He, they show up and they say, where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And that, of course, um, really troubles Herod, right? He... Um, he calls together the wise men, or the, he calls together his own wise men, his scribes and the and the chief priests, and he asks them, "Where is the Christ to be born?" And they give him the answer in Bethlehem, down the road. But have you ever stopped to wonder, how did Herod know to ask for the Christ? Why did he call them together and say, "Where's the Messiah supposed to be born?" What does it mean? that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Greek word that's, that's there. Well, Herod knew to ask for the Messiah because um, if, the, if the Magi had showed up and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, Caesar told us that he has appointed a new person to uh, be the king in Jerusalem. Herod would have been concerned, but he would have, he would have understood that, Right? Or if they said some other regional power has told us that uh, David's heir has been born and we're looking for him. 
Herod also would have understood that. But instead, he calls him together and he asks for the Christ. And the reason is because the Magi's testimony, when they show up, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod knows he, has, he doesn't have any recently born heirs. But the testimony the Magi give is this, that nature itself has testified to us that the king of the Jews has been born. We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. All of a sudden, Herod hears news that the cosmos is testifying that the king of Israel has been born. And so he asks for the Christ. Where will the Christ be born? Where will the Messiah be born? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? I'll tell you what it means. It's something wonderful. It means that God's ruler, God's king, his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed has been born. Um, Messiah means uh, anointed one. The Greek word that we have here in Matthew, Christ, is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. And you remember in the Old Testament when kings uh, were anointed to be king over an area, they would pour out the oil on their head, signifying God's presence and power with that person to rule. And this is God's Messiah. You see, God had established the pattern of his kingdom in the Garden of Eden. He created the world and then he set his people, Adam and Eve, who were made in his image in order to rule under him. They were to have dominion over the order, uh, the created order, under God with his presence and his power. Adam was to rule over the whole world as a subordinate king under God, who is the true king over all. And in this sense, God reigns over his creation in and through Adam. But of course we know that Adam failed to reign over creation successfully. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they committed treason after reaching for the ultimate rule through the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But God did not abandon his purpose to rule the earth through a human king. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that a new ruler would come and crush the serpent's head and restore God's presence and power to humanity. We can continue tracing this through the Bible with the call of Abraham. Much later in Genesis, we see a renewed commitment on God's part to rule over the entire world through his chosen king. In Genesis 17, 4 through 6, when God uh, speaks to Abraham, he, he renews this, this mandate to rule, this dominion mandate that we saw at the beginning of Genesis. He, he reiterates it to Abraham, but he says this in Genesis 17, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Israel, Abraham's descendants, through its anointed kings, will be a blessing to all the nations as God's reign extends through the face of the earth through them. As Isaiah puts it, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. We read one of Isaiah's prophecies about this just a moment ago in Isaiah 60, verse 3. 
And it's the sense that Israel's kings and Israel through them is supposed to be a bright beacon set in the dark world in order to show the nations the way of salvation, the way back to God's power and presence and dominion. That was the purpose of Israel's kings. But aside from portions of David's and Solomon's rule, that never really happened. In fact, Israel itself became so corrupt that God sent them into exile in foreign lands. Instead of the nations streaming to them for a revelation of God, uh, they were judged and put into exile in, in foreign lands. And the hope for God's rule over the earth to be manifested in Israel's king seemed to have come to nothing. But the prophets, before, during, and after the exile, make it clear that even, even in exile, God would not and did not abandon his purpose to rule over his people and rule over his world through a king. They prophesied of another coming king, the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ. When he comes, they said, sin will be done away with. Human nature will be changed to conform perfectly to God's law. God's law will be written on our hearts. The land will reflect Eden with its fruitfulness. Nature will not be at odds uh, with man anymore. In fact, the renewal will be a remaking of the heavens and the earth. They promised that God himself would rule in this king. The prophet Zechariah says, the Lord will be king. Yahweh will be king over all the earth on the day the Lord on, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, Zechariah 14, 9. In that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2, 14. The king, this is the long-looked-for hope in Israel. It's the king that we all long for, the king that we all are looking for whether we realize it or not. And now the wise men show up and they say to Herod, we have seen his star and we're here to worship. Where is he? How do the people respond? Well, there's three reactions. The first one is anger and anxiety. Anger and anxiety. Well, there's really only three possible reactions to the news that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King, and Matthew highlights all of them in our text. The first one is anger and anxiety. Now, that's probably surprising, uh, or a surprising reaction to some of you, given how I just finished saying how wonderful the Messiah's reign would be. Sin will be put, um, put away, justice will be done, creation will be renewed, everything will flourish like Eden again, there'll be uh, peace, there'll be justice. The kings of the earth will bow down to him and all will submit and God will reign in him and through him. Peace and joy and happiness, exultation. That is not Herod's reaction. <laughs> Look at verse number three. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word troubled there in most of your English translations is um, a used word a word used throughout the scriptures to describe uh, waves tossing or terror, fear, and anxiety. Herod and a good portion of Jerusalem had become very 
very anxious at the news of the Messiah's birth. And what you have to remember about Herod is that Herod is a very paranoid and brutal man. History tells us that he killed two of his sons and one of his wives because he suspected them of plotting against him. Herod had secret police stationed all throughout Jerusalem who would capture and interrogate and imprison and torture people uh, just to track, track out that maybe perhaps somebody was plotting against him or opposing him. So when someone like Herod hears this, it's one thing to hear that all the kings of the earth are going to bow down and submit to the Messiah. That would be bad enough for someone like him, but Herod is actually sitting on the Messiah's throne. The wise men ask for the king of the Jews, which is precisely the title that Herod gave himself. Worse still, Herod is not an Israelite. Herod is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau, who according to Deuteronomy, is not allowed to be on the throne in Israel. And now these people show up and they want to know where the born king is. Herod's paranoid because he knows he's really a pretender to the throne. The coming of the Christ for Herod means an utter loss of control and power. He's so anxious and opposes the Messiah with all of the cunning and violence that he has. In the next passage in 2, uh, 13 through 18, we learn that Herod orders the death of all the infant boys two and under in the districts of Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. You know, when I'm talking to someone who is not a believer, one of the ways I know that they're really beginning to understand the implications of Christianity is that it upsets them, that it troubles them. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the king, that means that you're not. It means an utter loss of control in your life. And that's what you and I want more than anything. We may not be murderous and paranoid like Herod is, most of us. But like Herod, every single one of us desperately, desperately want control. The Scottish pastor and author George MacDonald who was an author that inspired uh, C.S. Lewis, um, said this, quote, the one principle of hell is, I am my own, end quote. What he means is this, that, that in the end, everyone in hell will agree on one thing, I am my own. That's what we all believe to some degree or another, isn't it? I'll come to Jesus if he can help me with where I am going, but I will get to set the direction of my life. No, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. It's not just non-believers. We all have places in our life where the thought of Christ's control there makes us anxious. All of us, since the fall of Adam and Eve, are pretenders to the throne to one degree or another. Ever since our first parents decided they would not rule under God, but rule as gods, we've all partaken in that same sin. So what is it for you? What part or plan for your life have you made that Jesus is not allowed to touch or direct? Is there a part of Scripture that you read that 
makes you bristle or anxious. Whatever that thing is, turn it over to Him. Turn it over to Him in prayer. Bow and recognize the gracious reign of God's Messiah, the one who will restore all things. Recognize that His reign is far better than your own. Turn it over to Him. We might also get anxious about Christ's reign if it means change, just like the people in Jerusalem. It says that Herod was anxious and troubled and all the people in Jerusalem. And we might understand that if they're like Herod, if this means a change of power or control for them, sure, we get that. But what about, what about the others? Herod is, is paranoid. Herod's brutal. But he's really good at famine relief and building projects. Right? He, he built the temple, and he, and he was able to get the food out. We might say today that the trains run on time. But a new king means change. And if you live into Jerusalem, you've got to be thinking to yourself, what might someone like Herod do if he starts to lose control? What might someone like Herod do if he starts to lose power? You might be collateral. And we can all end up resenting Jesus' work in someone else's life when we realize all the pain that it might cause us because of their resisting it. Sure, in the end, for Jerusalem, it's going to be far better than having Herod sit on the throne. But the getting there is going to be quite painful. I mean, every, every infant to and under in Bethlehem is going to be killed in the next passage. Now, that's a very extreme example. But it's all too easy for us to let fear of disapproval or financial loss or relational strife or so on govern our decisions instead of thinking about what the Messiah is putting right in the world. It's easy for us to lose hope. But the good news that Matthew brings is that despite Herod's paranoia, despite his anxiety, despite his brutality, despite killing all of the infants in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem, God's purpose is to redeem the world through his king, to do away with sin and to bring the righteous rule of God in the earth can't be thwarted. God works all things for their good and his own glory. And so there's hope. We can, we can trust in God's providence to bring about good, and that gives us great peace throughout the change that Christ brings in our life and in others. It's the first one, anger and anxiety. Second one, second response is indifference and unbelief. I guess I'm going to make all of these combinations, anger and anxiety, indifference and unbelief. Okay, uh, this is exemplified by the chief priests and the scribes. And, and here we see Herod's cunning um, showing forth again and that he calls these two groups together about the wise men's questions because these two groups stood in, in opposite ends of the Jewish, Jewish social leadership. The scribes were conservative teachers of Scripture. They wanted to preserve Jewish culture, while the chief priests at this point, um, as opposed to like the ordinary temple priests, were Sadducees, and they were willing to accommodate Roman power and Greek culture in order to retain uh, their own benefit. And so 
Herod's got to be thinking, if these two groups can come together and agree on an answer, in other words, then it's likely true. And they did agree. As we saw before, they cite uh, Micah 5.2 in 2 Samuel 7, saying that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, as it says in verse 5. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew where the prophecy was to be found, and they knew the prophecy was from God. And yet, after the scribes and the priests give their answer, they just drop right off the page. We don't hear anything else from them. They don't rejoice. They don't speak to the Magi. They don't go to Bethlehem, which is a mere five or six miles away, to worship with them. And they don't even go to investigate the report. On the surface, that seems kind of baffling, doesn't it? The guys in the story with the most Bible knowledge have the least interest in the report. What's going on there? This is the thing that Matthew's setting up. Religious people were often the last to receive Jesus. On more than one occasion, Jesus tells the religious rulers of his day that if the pagans had seen his signs and heard his preaching, they would have repented. But the religious people saw no need of repentance. It is true then, just as much as it is true today, that sometimes those who know the faith the most in the mind have at least in their hearts. Pastor Kent Hughes says this, quote, There is a grave danger in ritual familiarity with holy matters, even if you are not a professional. It is all too easy to go spiritually brain-dead when the prelude begins to say prayers rather than to pray them, to use the cadence of a confession as a rhythmic anesthetic, to mindlessly mouth the words of great hymns and gospel songs, to nod off during the sermon, to glibly mouth evangelical creeds, and then imagine that we're really spiritual, end quote. That's the theme that Matthew begins here, and he develops it throughout the rest of the gospel. The real reason the religious leaders, the religious rulers are indifferent is because they're proud, and pride blinds. Unlike the Magi, they can't see the light. They had correct interpretations, but a host of incorrect expectations about how God would fulfill all of these great promises from the prophets that they knew. They had expectations, in other words, that flattered their pride. And it's the same for us. If we are largely indifferent to Jesus, it might be because we don't perceive our need of him or perceive his love for you. If your spiritual life can accurately be described as Kent Hughes says, going through the motions, then seek God and ask that he open your eyes. The scribes couldn't see it. It was far too humble for them. You know, there's only one other place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is called the king of the Jews. Do you know where that is? Yes, that's right. It's written over the head, his head on the cross. An event, by the way, which Jesus calls his enthronement. 
In Isaiah 52 and 53, the prophet speaks of the Lord's servant who will be high and lifted up and exalted. It's the language of kingly exaltation. And it's reinforced just a couple verses later where it says that kings will shut their mouths because of him, Isaiah 52, 15. The exaltation of God's servant, however, will paradoxically, paradoxically come about through his suffering. In Isaiah 53, it says this, This servant, he, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds... We are healed. End quote. Those who exult in the king are the ones who see their need of him. The suffering and death of God's kingly servant is necessary for that long-awaited kingdom to be established. In fact, it's the very means, Isaiah says, by which that kingdom is established on earth. The, the wise men felt their need of him, and that's why they had the final reaction which is joy and worship. It says this in verses 9 and 10. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's hard to say exactly what the uh, wise men knew about the king of the Jews that they asked for. Some scholars speculate that they actually knew quite a bit because of the writings and the preaching uh, left by Daniel hundreds of years before, uh, but we're not actually told where they're from, so we don't know. Others speculate that they followed the star because of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24 that a star would rise out of Judah. But again, we can't be sure. But we do know this, that the star and the scriptures testified to them that God's king had been born, and that was good news for all nations. Friends, I want to remind you that you know you have far, far more knowledge than they did. Remember that Jesus' kingdom is for you, not against you. He was born in poverty, and he established his kingdom through the cross in order to take away your sin. If he had come and established his kingdom with glory and judgment at first, it would have been no good news for sinners like you and me. But the glory and the restoration foretold by the prophets has begun through his death and resurrection for you. Meditate on it and let it fill you with joy and motivate you to offer yourself back to God. That's exactly what happened to the wise men. It says in verse 11, And when they came to the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasuries, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Magi brought costly gifts to Jesus. They gave what was natural to them, what flowed from their lives in worship to him. They followed the star. They gave gold and Perfume from the royal court where they lived. And their action is an example for us. We should pray that we can also see how we can offer our own gifts to the Lord. 
you know, it's, it's interesting, though, when we, when we give of ourselves to something, we often give what is delightful, what is natural uh, to us, what's easy. But if it's something that we delight in, we also tend to work hard to make the gift excellent. So a gifted musician, for example, gives to others through their musical playing, but usually does so because they enjoy playing music naturally. But how, how do they become a gifted musician? By all the hard work um, that it takes and the practice and the time invested in order to be able to give that gift to others. Like the Magi, we should give to Christ what is natural and joyful and costly, allowing our gifts to become an outflow from the far greater gift of love and salvation that we have received from Christ. And despite what some preachers say, God does not work with us in a quid pro quo. If we give to Jesus, he'll, you know, he'll give back uh, to us. Rather, he has given us everything. And we, as a response, worship him with our lives. When we give to Jesus, we are like a child who offers gifts to their father and mother on Christmas to show how much they love them. Parents in that situation are always the prime givers. They do not need the gifts that their children give, but they do love them because of the love that they represent. Children only can give back to the parents what the parents have first given them. And we are the same way with Christ. Whether we're evangelizing or leading or praying or teaching or giving financially, all of our gifts cost us something. But there's both sacrifice and pleasure in giving to the God who loved us and gave himself for us in the person of his Son. So let's pray that God would give us humility and grace to see his kingdom coming in Christ and to offer ourselves back to him in response. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, and that he is alive from the dead and at your right hand, ruling on the throne. We thank you that you've given us life in him, forgiveness of our sins, and an eternal inheritance with you. And we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see this in greater measure daily and that we might worship you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.